Well, joining me today is a former agricultural editor for the BBC radio soap opera The Archers, uh, but also a journalist in agriculture and farming and rural affairs for the last 30 or 40 years. And he's joining me on the phone line today. So if anything goes wrong, uh, it will blame the uh, phone lines. Uh, but joining me today is Graham Harvey. Hi, Graham. And, and if you could just tell us a little bit about what you're up to at the moment and about yourself just in general. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a writer about agriculture. I've written a number of books about agriculture, but uh, I started off as a, a farming journalist working on Farmers Weekly. Um, that was back in the 1970s. Uh, and then in the mid-80s, I, I joined The Archers as a script writer. Um, I worked on The Archers uh, for about oh, more than 30 years altogether on a, an annual freelance contract. But... Uh, as a writer, and then I became the agricultural story editor. So you know, my chief interest was in agriculture and what was happening. Well, I mean, what got you interested in agriculture in the first place? In farming, it's not one of those things that um, often get you know would make someone go into journalism and, and focus on agriculture. What got you interested in it in the first place? Yeah, it's hard hard to say. Um, I, I don't come from a farming background. If I, I grew up in a council estate in Reading, so he had no connection with farming at all but for whatever reason I just got interested in it and I wanted to do something at university um, and I thought I'd just do agriculture it seemed like uh, an interesting outdoor sort of subject mm-hmm. uh, really not knowing much about it and um, kind of uh, went at the deep end really but I've never regretted it I always found it fascinating and you know I just feel at this precise moment we're at a time of uh, radical change really in the way we use land because of climate change and loss of biodiversity um, means yeah. that we have to uh, sort of change what we're doing so that's the point I've got to after sort of 40 years writing yeah. of it, I guess well we'll come on to your ideas around agriculture and how it should radically change but I was just going to ask you first of all I think you saw touching you're touching on it now about how agriculture has changed over the last 30, 40 uh, years that you've sort of, you know, been in that sector or have been observing it, at least whether through journalism or in your role as a, the in, with the archers. I mean, how has it really changed for you? What's been the most sort of dramatic changes? Well, we, I, I guess the most the biggest changes happened uh, in the sort of 1960s, 1970s, really. I mean, I was born into and grew up in a world that where... Uh, Farm, farming was basically the traditional mixed farm. It was mm-hmm. the farm of all, all children's picture books, really, you know, where you had cattle and sheep, and you also had crops and crop rotations all on the same farm. And what, where we've gone to and where it really started changing was in the 70s, 60s and 70s, where farmers were encouraged to become specialists, if you like, mm-hmm. um, and the subsidy system, the support system encouraged this. So basically the old mixed farm, uh, you know, that sustainable system of producing food really started to decline and we ha- we saw the rise of the specialist, particularly the specialist arable farm mm-hmm. where you just uh, farmers just really grow a few crops in monoculture and it's a system which would exhaust the soil if yeah. it wasn't for the fact we have a lot of chemicals so the whole system is dependent on uh, nitrate fertilizers and pesticides and where we've got to is that 
we, we've now reached the point where that we it's clear that that system of agriculture, that high input monoculture, mm. is doing great damage to the soil yeah. and to biodiversity. And frankly, the planet can't afford to go on doing that any longer. Well, I mean, why do you think a, a big reason for this rise of specialized agriculture and this rather damaging form of farming uh, has arisen? I mean, do you feel it's part of the wider economic system, which has just encouraged sort of a, a pillaging for profit sort of mantra? Or is it or is it just a, a general sort of that's how science sometimes works? Kind of, um, I, I wouldn't even say it was science. It's kind of almost a corrupted science, really, because yeah. it's very selective science. It's um, when people, when you talk about um, biological systems and ecological systems, really, they are so complex that science can never actually show you the way to go in it. And people have said, we're, you know, we're evidence-based. You can't really apply that to complex biological systems like the soil, because basically we don't know how they work and we still don't basically know how they work so it's it's not something which has been particularly led by science it's, it's actually been led by the technology and the people who profited from the technology and by that i mean you know the fertilizer companies and the pesticide companies the oil industry and and now the biotech companies which are driving that very extractive form of agriculture, yeah. which is so damaging. I mean, something like, it is shocking, the, the, the stats on this, something like 40% of the world's soils are now seriously degraded by that high-input system of agriculture. And basically it means that, you know, our, our future, our, our whole ecosystem is threatened, you know, our planet's threatened. High-input agriculture, you know, we we're very into the damaging uh, you know the effect of damaging uh, carbon emissions but that kind of high impact agriculture can lead to carbon losses from the soil as as high as 10 tons per hectare per year and that's you know that's the that's just growing our food we don't have to do farming like that we could do farming in a way that actually puts carbon back in yeah. the soil uh, and that's really, I think, the way that we're going to have to go to very quickly. I mean, you were talking about we don't know enough about soil. Why do I mean, why is it that we don't know enough about soil? Is it just a general laziness on part of man that we just don't? That's one part of the world we haven't discovered or well, not discovered, but, you know, really properly re researched. Why is it that's the case? I guess it's like we like we don't know what you know much about the deepest oceans it's soil is there and mm. over thousands of years as long mm. as have been we've been we've had farmers farmers have found ways to um grow food on it without actually uh, destroying it without reducing its productivity and basically they've done this or societies have abused their soils and those societies have actually disappeared those civilizations have disappeared but the the smart societies have found ways of producing food in ways that keeps the soil productive and uh and science basically hasn't taken a great deal of interest i you know back in the 1960s i did agriculture at bangor but you know i did uh, soil science as a subsidy subject and uh, basically it was all a question the, the 
soil science I learned then was all about uh, the physics and the chemistry of soils. We, we knew virtually, we, there's virtually nothing in the program about the biology of soils. Basically, it's that, you know, there's that subterranean army of microbes of incredible complexity. And, you know, we haven't anywhere near identified all the species in soils. And, and what they all do, we don't know. But it's the, you know, the the generality of those processes in the soil which actually maintains fertility and and produces plant growth mm-hmm. and it's the plant that, that mm. feeds the so this is the very basis of civilization um you know yeah. so, you know the biology of soil now is you know the science is really trying to catch up because they can see we've got a problem but that that part of soil life has been neglected for um for 50 years by science. You talk about these big biotech companies and the various corporations involved. I mean, does it worry you that, I mean, recently we hear about the mergers between some of the biggest sort of seed companies and the biggest corporations, particularly, I believe, Bayer and Monsanto have merged together and they're sort of controlling something up to 65% of the world's seed production. Does it worry you? Absolutely. That's been a worry for many years, actually. We've seen the biotech companies take over the seed companies. So, you know, they've they've gone for this whole integrated package where farmers are obliged to buy the seeds, um, in many cases, genetically modified seeds from the same few companies. And then they buy the inputs to put on those those plants. You know, we've got Roundup ready and... uh, GM crops which have grown extensively in the States Mm. and you know the the downside of all that's coming out it's interesting that um, Bayer is now Bayer which has taken over Monsanto Mm. um, is now the subject of uh, billion dollar lawsuits because of um, people who are taking action because this roundup um, you know glyphosate which is which is marketed has been marketed as roundup is now Mm. um uh, um, said to be producing uh, cancer in humans and there have been some very uh, successful lawsuits Mm. against uh, Monsanto on that basis and there are many more there are thousands more people queuing up to to take that action so I think Bayer may be regretting taking over Monsanto Mm -hmm. I mean there is some suggestions I, I have spoken to a number of sources from Bayer before and their suggestion is that actually you know these lawsuits are simply just based on rhetoric and actually it's very easy to scare among a bunch of jurors into thinking that a chemical can cause cancer but actually this is sort of not really the case there is still a sort of real strong backlash against these lawsuits within the, the science community or well, within these a, corporations there is a backlash and you know a, but science is always like this isn't it i mean it, i mean always before science becomes settled there are often decades of dispute between scientists about who's taking the right view all i can say in in court case in this court case uh, i forget what the settlement was but it was uh, tens of thousands of dollars for yeah. this particular um cancer incident yeah. but uh, you know just uh, getting beyond that it's it's kind of um it's the conceptual idea of what food is and what you know what we are really you know are we are we sort of um do we look on the world the globe the, the as a machine or 
or are we part of an ecosystem whose complexity we don't understand but if it collapses we know we're going to be in trouble and it's i guess it's mm. i've seen agriculture changed it, it's now being viewed as this you know uh, i don't know this almost like you know it's like we're we're mining the soil we can you know it's it's kind of what our society does you know we 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 go for maximum production yeah. um, and everything's put under strain you know the animals the, the people and in this case the soil and then something goes wrong and yeah. we see a collapse and then we look for fixes for that or whether we could look at things in a more constructive well i think a more constructive way we you know we know what sustainable food systems are you know they mm. they don't rely on a lot of outside input yeah you know they're mostly solar powered we yeah. don't need, they don't need a lot of fossil fuel mm -hmm. and so on um and those kind of ecological systems yeah are quite capable of, of you know, feeding the planet. And this is something which is denied by the yeah. biotech companies. But I, I, you know, there's good science now to show that those ecological systems not only can feed the planet, but yeah. the only way that, that we can feed the planet mm -hmm. sustainably. I mean, you have suggested uh, that, you know, part of this sustainable agriculture, uh, part of this sustainable agricultural system is that, you know, it is right that people do cut back to some extent meat the meat that they consume for the sake of the planet and their own health i mean do you think this should apply to all meat types or just certain types of meat because there have been some suggestions that you know it's really about the non-red meats like uh, pig and poultry which have been really the poor forms of meat that have had a terrible impact on carbon emissions and on methane levels and on the environment overall well you know my view is that um Grassland and grazing are, are really very important for a sustainable food system, uh, partly because in nature, you know, animals and plants are always together. And mm -hmm. when, you, when you take animals out of the system, which we did when we went down this route of specialization, mm. so you had your specialist arable crops which are totally dependent on chemical inputs mm. and the animals and basically animals are put in, in in animal factories and basically fed grains you know that to me is um a very unsustainable way and, and planet unfriendly way of producing food mm. uh, so uh, my wish would be to see um grazing animals back in on mixed farms mm. and that uh, most of us still eat meat and most of us still consume dairy products and, and those of us that do that we should as much as possible uh, yeah. take it from animals that are out grazing on pasture mm -hmm. and there are uh, i'm you know um, you'll know this as well as I do, George, but, mm. you know, there are systems of grazing now that it's called regenerative agriculture would actually do regenerate the soil. So it's almost like it's sort of a carefully managed system mm. of grazing yeah. uh, where the pastures don't just contain grasses. They also contain deep rooting herbs. Yeah. And if you manage those well, then not only do you get very high quality meat and dairy foods from it but also you actually regenerate the soil so mm. it's almost like a free lunch it's a solar powered but system of agriculture which 
rather than depleting the soil, actually builds up the fertility mm. even as you're getting more and more food from it. But, so, you know, it's a free gift of nature, really. Yeah. But some would say that free lunch is perhaps only for the few because really, is it really a, a system that could sustain the population levels that they are that we are at at the moment and is it something that is going to be able to be rolled out quick enough in order to shore up you know our food systems to ensure that they are you know sustainable and can feed demand uh, well it can certainly meet demand i mean the rate at which we're destroying our soils means that the way we do it now has to change i think everyone would agree with that there are those who think well you know, we can do a technical fix with GM crops on, uh, with reduced requirements for inputs and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But what we're doing now has to stop because we're killing our soils and uh, we're warming the planet through the way we, we use land. So, and it's very clear, and there's plenty of science now to show that ecological methods are perfectly capable of feeding 10 billion people on this planet. There was a very uh, major uh, study that came out more than 10 years ago. Um, it was funded by the World Bank. It, in, it involved science, 400 scientists around the world, and they looked at the future of agricultural technology. And their clear conclusion was that our present technologies were incapable of feeding the earth because they were destroying soils at such a high rate and that ecological solutions were the, the best uh, future for the planet. Mm -hmm. But that, uh, that report was kind of airbrushed from history, particularly in America and the UK, because it didn't suit the biotech companies. Um, the British government really gave it no publicity at all. In fact, when it came out, although it was a, a British scientist who'd been a co-author of it, um, uh, the British chief, uh, under political pressure, we produced a, 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 a second and less thorough report called the Foresight Report because that left the door open to GM crops, which uh, suited the biotech companies. Do, I mean, do you think that the current government is able to really... I mean, you've just said that it obviously was trying to get a, a report that was perhaps more politically appeasable, but do you think that the current government is able and has the capacity to, or has the willpower, to ever at any point sort of stop GM and prevent that and, and to bring in a more sustainable form of agriculture and encourage that across the country? Uh, well, I am quite encouraged in some ways. Uh, I mean, they've obviously got other things on their minds at the moment, but uh, uh, Michael Gove, when he was Environment Minister, um, really started, you know, he said a few things that made me think, you know, he, he got the problem. He understood the problem. And I know some of the farms he went and looked at, the kind of farms that I would very much support. And um, uh, without, you know, blowing my hand trumpet too much, I, I've got a book called uh, Grass-Fed Nation. Uh, and I know Michael Gove read that because he... Um, he kind of endorsed it in an interview with uh, for Country Farm, BBC Country Farm magazine. He said, you know, what I'd suggest in that book might be the way ahead. And as you will guess from the title of it, it was basically all about grassland and how building that into our systems can make our systems more sustainable and, and bring biodiversity back and all that sort of thing. So um, I think the government gets it. Now, whether anyone's going to be brave enough to actually show the leadership to switch 
really to take on the large corporations and to take on, you know, a substantial farming lobby which is locked into this high-input uh, cereal. I don't know. I don't know. Um, you, I mean, you, you, you obviously talk about how, you know, Michael Gove has obviously read your book and, and your ideas about farming have obviously spread far and wide. And part of that process of you spreading some of these more regenerative and helpful, sustainable ways of farming and rural living it has been obviously your work with the archers and you've tried to put a lot of the innovations that you've seen in farming uh particularly sort of uh various pastures and herbal grazing and you've tried to put that into a lot of your a lot of the the work that the archers did at, at your time as former cultural story editor yeah do, i mean do you think the archers was an effective way of trying to spread that message is it a good platform i mean obviously we've got questions at the moment about whether the BBC is a, uh, an effective I, instrument. Do you think the Archers was an effective way of getting that message across? Well, I think it's a, a very effective way of, of um, uh, spreading ideas, yeah, about um, farming in the countryside. And, and I, that's really, in a, in a sense, that's where it started. Um, you know, the, I, the first idea about putting on this show called The Archers, it was actually the producer was... Um, an agricultural producer based in the Midlands, a chap called Godfrey Basley. It was his idea. Um, and at that time, we're talking about um, the late 40s, the Archers started as... Um, on a, it had its first trial run in 1950, just in the Midlands region. Then it started as a national program in January the 1st, 1951. And it was very much conceived as a... Of course, it had to be entertaining but it was conceived of a way of encouraging farmers to, to produce more food and, and get what was considered then to be up to date, i.e. to get mechanised and, and probably start down the path, which now I would think was a mistake. But anyway, that, that's, that was the origin of the, the programme. It was to get across these messages about you know getting up to date and all that. And one of the you know, early characters was um, uh, a chap called Walter, Walter Gabriel, who was supposed to be a very uh, rough and ready farmer, a bit of a ragamuffin, and all his field, farm field gates were falling off the hinges. So he was there as a comic character, really, to, to, uh, to sort of shame farmers, if you like, to being more progressive. But uh, that character became one of the most popular. Um, and it's interesting that the response I mean, the BBC, in many ways, weren't all that keen on doing this programme because it didn't come from the drama department. Mm. The drama department had their own uh, soap they were planning called Mrs. Dale's Diary. And this, this idea from this producer in the Midlands, uh, you know, was, uh, you know, they resisted for a while. But anyway, decided finally to go ahead after the trial. And the results were, you know, the... The audience growth was just phenomenal, and nobody, nobody anticipated it was going to be so popular. So it started in early 1951, and by within five years, you know, it was peaking at something like 20 million listeners. It's like, you know, half the adult population was listening to this show. Do you, I mean... I, I think... Sorry. I, I was going to say, I think to this day, nobody's quite sure the reason. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, it was partly... Uh, there was very little television then, of course, so there wasn't much alternative, um, which no doubt accounts for some of it. But 
but and and radio drama was quite new. Uh, I think mm. a lot of people thought this was a these were real people, and in way in some ways the BBC encouraged its audience yeah. to think of these as real people. I don't think they'd be allowed mm. to do that now. Mm. But anyway, it produced a colossal audience, and. Um, and still has a very big audience, of course. It still has, um, uh, five, yeah, about five, mil- five, five million yeah, yeah. regular radio listeners, plus a big online audience mm. on, on top of that. I mean, I was going to sort of ask about that, and it's it's spread now. And I mean, you talk about obviously what it originally was uh, set up for, but I wondered if actually, you know, is it really useful, particularly getting to the farming communities now, whether it is actually useful in spread in certain ideas or messages or is it just you know either it doesn't have a listenership from the farming community um or it or you know you have farmers just swearing at it because it's sort of promoting sort of hippie ideas and you know rather sort of non-real realistic ideas there was certainly some of that from farmers and i should yeah i should complete the story i mean the the bbc's mission to educate as well as inform and entertain i mean that went many many years ago back in the 60s so it doesn't have uh, you know it's not trying to uh, it doesn't try and inculcate uh, propaganda or anything now um but having said that i always found it uh as long as you were balanced about the way you being the BBC was always required to have a balance in the story so you know if, you know, if, if I was doing a story about an organic you know the organic farm in the arches then you had somewhere you had to put this sort of other side you had Brian Aldridge or one of the conventional farmers putting the other side view so um, so within that you could actually uh, float out some you know interesting ideas and yeah some years ago you know I had uh, one of the characters Adam planting his herbal lays <laughs> just uh, you know to do this kind of regenerative agriculture um and you know i got his 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 uh, stepfather brian aldridge being very skeptical about the idea the idea so i got some balance in like that so um i felt an obligation to do that because mm-hmm. it was the bbc yeah. but that didn't matter to me uh you know for example i it was my idea to bring in a story about a big mega dairy, which I'm not in favour of particularly. But uh, I, you know, I just thought it was interesting to have it there because you could hear all the pros and cons, <laughs> uh, and so you could you could be perfectly balanced and yet put over the idea that there was a different way of producing milk. And I felt that about the herbal mm-hmm. lays, you know, it, and it, it was an idea that did get a lot of currency uh, amongst artists' listeners. I, you know, I, I occasionally give talks to uh, non-farming audiences and lots of them tell me they, they know what herbal lays are. Yeah. And that was solely through the archers. So, yeah, mm. it's quite a good vehicle mm-hmm. to, to get our ideas. And, of course, um, you know, these, these sort of ideas and uh, different ways of thinking about food need to get out there because, you know, we are, as a nation, we are just so ignorant about our food really mm. and yeah I, I was I, I just before we move off the arches I mean, and, and wondered whether did you ever have a, a favorite character you own sit off your own sort of work um in the arches yeah i i always um well my favorite family really were the yeah. grundies um mm. which kind of like they're the sort of modern inheritors of that uh walter gabriel character who always represents a not really good farmers mm. well the grundies were the sort of modern um uh, kind of uh, the p 
people who were putting <laughs> representing that kind of farming. I always just thought they were great. In fact, when I, I started writing, as a, working as a scriptwriter in, in the mid 1980s, mm. and uh, uh, in some ways I actually found writing the artist characters quite difficult because mm. I didn't particularly warm to them. But it was like at, at Grange Farm where the Grundys lived that we had um, Clary and Eddie. They were the couple, and they had a couple of young kids. But yeah. and, uh, and Joe Grundy. So there were basically just three of them: Clary, Eddie, and Joe. And they used to live in this ramshackle. They were tenant farmers. They lived in this rather ramshackle farmhouse. And you know, I could, you, I've got a picture of the kitchen. You know, bits of old mm. tractor parts sitting on the kitchen table. And Joe Grundy would probably have his ferrets out in the corner, that sort of thing. And I, it's like when I when I was writing scenes for them, it's like I was. I, I could almost hear them in my head. I just like I couldn't get the words down fast enough. And they were all—they always turned out to me my best scenes. I just kind of felt I just knew those characters. Don't know why. <laughs> so they, yeah, they were my favourite mm-hmm. characters. Uh, and talking obviously the arches was on the bbc it's on where well, it still is on bbc radio 4 obviously the bbc overall has faced a lot of pressure at the moment about whether it's really of use uh, in its sort of current form um is it actually you know uh, helping uh, society is it a really important institution that we should uphold i mean i wondered whether a you know do you agree that it is an important institution and b obviously is it actually helpful for and is it a, a key part of rural and agricultural uh, life and communities do you think it, it, it helps them uh, do you know i have mixed feelings about it really mm-hmm. um i there are a lot of things that kind of annoy me about the bbc one of the things is it's just so because because it's you know funded by the license, you have this sense that it didn't do anything too political, and I always felt this about its coverage—not you know, not particularly on the archers, but its coverage of the countryside in general. I mean, it won't tell you know the the radical stories. You know, I I, um, I was co-founder of um, uh, an alternative uh, Oxford farming conference called the Oxford Real Farming Conference, which uh, you know I helped to found. 10 years ago and you know that was the audience for that were mostly young they mostly wanted to change things they want to make things better and you know there were amazing amazing speakers with amazing ideas how we could transform the planet just by changing the way we grow our food and the way we manage land and the way we look at you know and you never heard those kind of ideas clearly set out in any BBC program and I thought well they den because you know the you know the right wing press will get onto them if they show any sort of left or radical leanings and I and you know at its worst everything comes over as very bland or or you set you know you set up a very artificial confrontation between people you know two sides and you end up after these two sides have had a go at each other and really not understanding much about anything. And I, I just knew all these kind of great ideas were floating around uh, countryside and agriculture, um, which you never heard on the BBC. So, but on the against that, I would have to say, if the BBC weren't there, would you know would who would be doing it? And I'm not sure there's anyone else out there who would be doing it. I wonder if the if you know we shouldn't be putting up public service broadcasting money into making shows that 
you know, wouldn't be done by the commercial sector. So, yeah, I have my greatest problems, really, with the most popular BBC shows. I mean, they obviously do fantastic drama and they do fantastic wildlife programs. And, you know, but I, you know, whether we should be spending all this money on, mm-hmm. on uh, you know, the, you know, the strictly yeah. come dancing, I don't, yeah, yeah. you know, almost hesitate to say that. Yeah. But, you know, those kind of shows. Yeah. So, well, yeah. that, that, that was a that was a very balanced way, a very BBC approach to uh, answer that question in many ways. Um, but <laughs> but I, I I want to move on sort of more into your your other journalism, which you did uh, for a while, which was obviously the Daily Mail or the Sunday Times, and you've done pieces for the Guardian as well, um, largely commentary, of course, about agriculture and rural communities. And I wondered, yeah. I wondered, you were talking about obviously British. Brit- the British public largely being rather clueless about food and food production and agriculture. And I wondered whether you really noticed, particularly within journalism as well, and there's a whole idea of the sort of metropolitan form of the bubble almost. Um, there is obviously that Westminster bubble, but I think there's also a wider media bubble. And I wondered if you felt that actually there was this real disconnect between urban uh, and the metropole and, and the wider communities and wider rural life? Uh, well, well, there is clearly a disconnect, aren't there? Whether it's, a, whether it's a metropolitan... I mean, I've written a number of books about agriculture and, and some of the... I mean, none of them are sold particularly well, but some of the best sales have come in London, actually. So, you know, the, I think, you know, just... Because you're in a city doesn't mean you don't think quite deeply about um, stuff. Um, I I don't know. I guess uh, you know. I just when I started going around farms, I just thought uh, I wouldn't want to eat the food off this farm, and I would want to eat the food off that farm. And it, I mean, it was so fundamental. And I thought, well, if I just write about this, if I describe how I felt seeing this kind of farming, then people will really. Uh, buy into it and it'll be very successful but it hasn't worked like that and I mm-hmm. um, and I'm not sure I've got an answer to it I, yeah. I just I, I just the arches coming back to the arches that was yeah. kind of about storytelling so I thought it might, maybe that's that's another way into it so yeah. in a way fictionalise it but somehow it becomes you know even more real or people more open to taking views on that and you know just I remember when I was at university, I got into reading Thomas Hardy novels, mm-hmm. and I just thought this is a sort of very, this is great storytelling with great characters, and um, I always wanted to do that, and I thought that might be the way into it. Um, yeah. But it, it, it hasn't worked for me so far, but maybe it's all about to change. I mean, do you think there needs to be more work, particularly in education, uh, around food systems and farming? Obviously, there is a lot of uh, teaching that goes into talking about the science behind a lot of things i remember learning for gcse and so on about gm and so on do you think that education is a real important place for this sort of thinking about food and food production needs to start and, and sort of what form should that take in terms of being taught to children well, i think environment i think it's all part of environment really it's all part of seeing ourselves as part of this uh, this this kind of ecosystem really you know it's part of this amazing world of life that we're part of that starts in the soil you know that you know it's i you know it in 
in old age, I get, you know, I get daily more excited by, you know, the intricacy and the wonder of how the whole thing works. You know, it's things like, you know, the, you know our gut biomes, for example, and, and you know, how, how, how they, in many ways, they seem to work like the soil around the root zones of plants. And it's those kind of things, you know, we, so you have plant roots, basically, that gather the right kind of species around their plant roots to provide them with the proper nutrition and, and at the same time the plant roots feed those microorganisms they're, through their exudates as they're called and then that sort of feeds through to the plant and those all those nutrients as long as the soil's working right and, and particularly the fungal links between plant roots and the soil are working well then the soil take the, the plants take up a lot of nutrients which they pay the soil organs for and they end up in the grazing animals or in our crops and the whole thing becomes you actually see yourself as part of this amazing system of great complexity and then you i, I so you have a sense of that and i just think you know, that's who we are, that's our identity, you know, we're part of this amazing system, and then you go down your local spa shop, and you see the kind of things you're offered to put in your body down there, and you think, there is the disconnect, there is uh, the creation of something so artificial that you kind of know it's going to harm you somehow, and, and yet we've constructed this great artifice around ourselves to yeah. deny our link and our being part of this natural world. Yeah. Um, but to me, that it's so it, you know, it, it's also interesting. Thing: how can people not be interested in this? It must be because those of us who are sort of seeing it a little bit aren't telling the stories about it right. So yeah, I blame myself really. I'm not a good enough writer. That's what it is. <laughs> Well, I'm sure that I'm sure that's not the case at all. And I, I, I was <coughs> wondering if you feel that, uh, you know, with the growing sort of sense with the uh, protests, with uh, you know, we've got Greta Thunberg and so on, whether any of that is sort of moving people, you know, strongly enough towards more sustainable forms of agriculture. Or do you feel? Do you really fear the rise of ideas of veganism and vegetarianism? I, I think um, vegan, I, I mean, I was a vegetarian for a long, long time. My wife is a vegetarian, and I've, and I think it's, I do think that's an absolutely right moral choice to make, but I, I've now reached a point in my life where I don't think the world works like that, and, you know, whether we eat, farm animals or not they actually fulfill an amazing function in keeping in keeping soils fertile and keeping the atmosphere you know decarbonized so they are part i see them as part of this whole process of, of you know making the planet work um graham i was going to ask sort of really as a, a one of the roundup questions as sort of what is your real big message particularly to consumers i know you're obviously encouraging a, a sort of very much grass uh, land, pasture land, sort of farming where soils are regenerated. But to consumers particularly, how can they, how can an ordinary person who is, is going to the supermarket, how can they help, you know, uh, the climate crisis through the food they eat and, and through regenerating farming? Well, 
I mean, we're, we're not... You, you can't go in the supermarket and buy food from regenerative farms at the moment. It would be great if you could. At the moment, the best you can do is, is uh, buy organic foods, because uh, that will at least come from a a mixed farming system uh, or if it's you know if it's a, an animal product it will come from a system of mixed farming so and if it's uh, you know if it's meat or milk it will be you know the cattle will have to you know be out on grass or mm -hmm. have a certain percentage of their you know their ration will have to be forage yeah um but that isn't the best you could do far better than that i mean uh there are some farms, you know, who, well, there are some farms now, there's an organization called Pasture for Life, where they, yeah, and they guarantee that those grazing animals will have had nothing but uh, grass and forage for their mm -hmm. whole life, so they won't be fed any grain. And yeah. the grain, um, feeding grain to ruminant animals is really not a great idea. It's not a great idea for the ruminant animals, um, like, by that I mean cattle and sheep. Yeah. Um, uh, because uh, you know they're the rumen. They're you know they're designed to eat uh, low energy fibrous foods. Mm -hmm. um, and when uh, as some farmers now feed grains to those animals, whether they be beef animals or dairy cows, the idea is either to produce more milk or to speed yeah. the you know the fattening process. But um, that feeding grain to ruminant animals actually produces not is it not healthy for the the animal it actually produces meat and dairy foods which have a different fat profile a less healthy fat profile yeah um, uh, so uh, but pasture for life uh, mm -hmm. markets now now markets meat and is trying to market milk where the animals the ruminant the cattle are just fed on uh, grassland and yeah. uh, forage products and um uh, there is a brand called uh, uh, Pasture for Life, which um, you won't see in supermarkets yet, but some butchers are now using this, so it mm -hmm. is possible. Um, the best, I, I don't eat much meat, but uh, I do eat some red meat, and it's uh, grass-fed, and I, I live near a town called Minehead. I go around the, the local farmer's market, which is every Friday. And there's a woman there uh, whose farm I've never actually been to, but I've taught her enough to know mm -hmm. that she is totally bought into the pasture idea and all her chickens and all her uh, sheep and cattle are out on grass all the time. But in the winter, they'll be fed hay and mm -hmm. silage. So I know that is grass-fed meat, and that's hers is the meat I buy. And it's no yeah. more expensive at the farmer's market. People say farmer's market is expensive, but yeah. that meat that meat is no more expensive than Tesco meat. Mm -hmm. So if you eat meat, if you, you'll have a good farmer's market in Cambridge, I'm sure. <laughs> so, uh, there must be grass-fed meat on sale there, I'd have thought. 